Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. So we kicked off a series last week uh, in some of the most odd chapters of the Bible. And it's true, they are odd. They, they're apocalyptic literature with uh, images in Revelation 6 to 20. And it's Lord of the Rings, Tolkien-style type writing that pulls the curtain back uh, to unveil what's really going on in the world. And that's why it's called apocalyptic writing, because it unveils something. And last week, we looked at this portion of Revelation that, uh, had, uh, that talks about seven seals, this image of a scroll in the hands of Jesus being opened up one kind of seal at a time and really seeing human history kind of unfold in that way, discovering last week particularly the crushing ideologies that lead to conquest, war, greed or famine, and then death. And while God is a patient God, we're going to see that today as well, part of his judgment is sometimes allowing humanity to take its course and implode on itself. And what we looked at last week as well is that even the church over history has suffered under this as they were, you know, a witness to God's kingdom, sometimes in contrast to the empires they were in, and they also suffered in the middle of this, or the church suffered or sometimes will still suffer through that. And yet we ended with this this hope that Jesus will shepherd his people through. This whole series is called Standing Through, that Christ will shepherd his people through the chaos of our world on the path to new creation. It's not chaos for chaos sake. It's on the path to new creation, which is uh, something we're going to find, you know, we're going to end with. And so if you're here for the first time, I said this last week, uh, we don't often just say, hey, we're going to like dig into Revelation, you know, for the next few weeks. It's, it, we haven't done that in a long, long time, and it's an it's a interesting book to do that with. But over the course of the last two, three years, especially with COVID, so many people are asking questions about this book and trying to use it as a, as a prediction manual. And we said last week, we're looking at this book in a prophetic pastoral sense, not a predictive sense. And I hope we can kind of stick with that approach as we go along. So today we're picking, off, picking up, sorry, from the, from the last seal, the seventh seal, and we're going to jump in and just read a little bit further. Uh, We're going to cover a little bit of ground, but in pockets, okay? So if you got a Bible, turn to Revelation 8. If not, it's going to be on the screen, and those of you guys at home as well can follow along. And so um, here's where we left off and then continue into this week, okay? So Revelation 8 says this, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets, trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was giving a, given a great quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets made ready to blow them. So let's pray. God, we're going to jump into these few chapters and these sections, God, and we just invite you to lead us. Help us to see your heart. Help us to see our heart even in the middle of that. Expose what's needed and draw us in uh, to the life you call us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Again, if this is your first time ever opening a book like Revelation, already you're like, ooh, these are kind of like interesting images, even in just what we read now. But we're taking a shift here from what we looked at last week to this week, from seven seals to seven trumpets. The seals, it's like, you know, like we said, the seals kind of reflect Revelation, like not, I don't mean the book of Revelation, but the idea of Revelation, because as seals are being opened, it's like something is being revealed. The trumpets reflect something more like proclamation. So we move from revelation to proclamation. The idea of a trumpet is a common theme in Scripture. You look at the Old Testament, it's a call to gather, a call to worship, a call maybe declaring some kind of a feast, an announcement of a king. Uh, Paul uses the idea of a trumpet talking about the second coming of Christ. But mostly in Scripture, uh, trumpets were used to warn people or warn the people, to wake them up. There was a prophet, his name was Joel, and he writes, uh, you know, speaking for the Lord, he says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It's like, a, that's a warning call. Trumpets were often used as a warning call. And here in John's prophecy that we're looking at today, it continues with another set of sevens, not seals, but trumpets. And there's going to be another set of sevens that are bowls. But here, this is the second set of sevens. Try saying that really, really fast. Second set of sevens. Um, and so there's three sets of sevens in all, and they all have the same pattern. First, there's kind of four that come about really quickly. And then there's uh, five and six that come that are a little bit expanded. And then there's an interlude in between the sixth and the seventh, and then the seventh one usually resembles like a finale or a conclusion, uh, something that transitions to where the whole book of Revelation is heading, which is God's new creation. But what we said last week is that the sevens in and of themselves or the sevens as a set are not sequential. It's not like this happens, then this happens, then this happens. In fact, if you read each of the sevens, you'll notice they kind of all say something similar, but with escalating language, with escalating metaf metaphors. So last week I talked about the idea of like a musical chord. You know, there's one note as a note, a second note as a, you know, two notes, a triad, a chord, like a long chord, like in jazz or classical music. And if you were like some symphony orchestra leader and you looked at your score, you would have like tons of lines all happening at the same time because, you know, 20 violins and a trombone and tuba and this and that or whatever, they're all playing at the same time. And so what the sevens do all together as well is like one big moment or maybe the description kind of all happening or all describing the same thing. It's not sequential, but it's describing the same historical sweep, just showing a wider kind of destructive impact that you read as you keep going forward. So here's, here's, the, here's the seven trumpets. And I don't even, you know what? I don't actually enjoy reading this type of literature in the Bible in church publicly because it's so apocalyptic. It has a certain feel to it. And yet it's part of scripture and we want to listen to it. But here's, here's just the seven trumpets. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets made ready to blow them. So here's the first. The angel blew his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were hurled to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. 
A third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and the third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the water because it was bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light was darkened, and a third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise the night. And then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice. It flew amid heaven, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, and at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. That was the first part, the first four. This is a warning call. When you think about this, this is a warning call. Just stop for a second. This is an attempt to wake up the world from the extent that evil has taken root in it. And it's such a stark call to wake people up from it. If you're familiar with Marvel Comics and this group called The Avengers and these movies that have been out later, there's a character, his name is Clint, Clinton Barton, and then his friend, Natasha Romanoff. They're known as Hawkeye and Black Widow. And now, these are characters in a movie and in, and in these comic books. Now, Barton has a good heart. He's a loving dad, and he's a loving husband, but he's also a warrior, and that's a tension in and of itself that I'm not going to explain or try and uh, justify. But there's a moment where Barton is overcome by some kind of you know, evil power from outer space, and it controls him, and he's, he's a bad dude at that moment. And his friend Natasha, who's also kind of like a really good warrior in, in and of herself, confronts him, and they fight it out. They fight it out like crazy. It's a crazy scene. And at one point, she takes his head, and there's a, there's a metal pole, and she just throws it against the pole. And it just kind of jars him so much in this fighting scene. And what's taking place is that she is beating him up so much so she could wake him up from what he's into, so that she could wake him up from whatever destructive path that he was on. And I know that was an image from a movie describing being woken up from a destructive path you're on. These are images, apocalyptic images, that John is showing for the first church and us to wake us up from a world that's gone off the rails. And it's ripping the curtain off. It's unveiling what's at work behind the scenes because evil is still active in the world. And if that's true, if it's true that evil still needs to be dealt with, then like Natasha waking up Barton or Black Widow waking up Hawkeye with a hit to the head, then something needs to wake up the world from its evil. And something needs to help us see the reality of sometimes what's going on under the surface. That God's good creation spirals in brokenness, and sometimes it's camouflaged, and sometimes it's as clear as day. Because, see, for God's kingdom and restoration of creation to actually come about, evil must be dealt with. And so in these four trumpets, we see these natural disasters taking place. And I just leave you with a question. I'm not going to tell you exactly what this is, if this is, you know, is this what, might, what this might look like. I can ask you the question, is it possible that God would allow this type of natural disaster to wake the world up, or is it only a metaphor? Is it possible that the power of wind, rain, and sea, and sun will one day be shaken so much the world will will wake up? I don't know. I, it's a metaphor. It's apocalyptic literature. It's meant to, to wake us up. It's like I said last week, when you watch The Lord of the Rings, the metaphor of Frodo's struggle and wrestle to climb up the mountain holding this ring to drop it in a volcano so that evil would be destroyed is, 
it's, it's helping us see the, the power and, and, and the pull of the power of the ring, the evil power of the ring. So when we read this, I can't tell you exactly what that might look like in real life, but whatever John sees and describes is a prophetic wake-up call to us with escalating images that describe something that we don't often like to talk about, which is judgment, divine judgment. Now, if you were a first-century Christian that came from a Jewish background and you're in one of the churches that's reading this as it gets circulated around, you would automatically have a connection to something you know about, and that's the story of the Exodus. You would have a connection to the story of Moses, who approaches the Pharaoh of Egypt, and you would remember the plagues of Egypt that were described in the Old Testament. Exodus is a story of Israel, a nation that was enslaved by Egypt, and God warns Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh keeps refusing to let his people go. God uses Moses to speak to him, and God sends ten plagues to wake up Egypt, to wake up Pharaoh. It's kind of that same idea, but now it's the whole world and not just Egypt. The world is at odds with God's kingdom coming like Egypt was at odds with God's people in Egypt. And God is bringing, in a sense, a sense of judgment to wake them up, to wake the world up. See, because God is concerned with anything that damages his creation. God is concerned and it grieves him when anything damages his creation or prevents his created humanity from discovering who he is, discovering his goodness, and also joining the, the, the path, the life that would lead them to new creation. And when something like that happens, often it's like surgery is needed, right? When, when there's something that's wrong, surgery is needed to remove it. And while there's some you know, surface-level things look great, under the surface, when there's a sickness, we, how do we deal with the sickness? How do we work out this sickness? How do, we, how do we stop this sickness? And it needs to be removed. N.T. Wright says it this way, and, and so it's too, kind of a long quote on two, two slides, so follow with me. I think it's really helpful. He says, and he quotes someone first saying, you haven't yet considered the seriousness of sin. He's talking about our, our generation the last hundred years or so as well. He says, even after a century of war, terror, and high-tech genocide, we are still inclined, in the Western world at least, to pretend to ourselves that the world has really become quite a pleasant place. The evil merely a blip on the horizon with which we can deal easily enough. However great the contrary evidence, this modern myth of the eradication of evil through enlightenment has taken hold on popular imagination that any idea of God having to do anything powerful or destructive to address the problem is regarded as far too drastic or dramatic. Because, I mean, when, when we have enough money and enough democratic process and enough good systems in our city, we can camouflage a lot of things. Like I quoted my friend last week, take away all our money and see how fast anarchy happens. It's easy to look at it on a screen or another part of the world or strife is happening, corruption's happening, this and this and that. But it's tough for us to actually see the seriousness of it. Now, when someone deals with injustice in a movie, we cheer. We do, right? Like, you, you know, when you look at it on the Lord of the Rings, you're like, yes, they won, they stopped 
They stopped the evil from happening, right? And, and so like Frodo got to the top and he dropped the ring in the volcano, right? If you've watched The Matrix and you know anything about The Matrix and Neo, that's his name, and he's like, he, you know, they're trying to get to the heart of what's making The Matrix corrupt. And in the end, when he, you know, brings to finality Mr., not Mr. Anderson, he's Mr. Anderson, Mr. Smith, you cheer. You're like, yeah, you saw what was wrong and you took care of it. When you see Luke Skywalker, you know, confront the dark force, you cheer. When you see, I don't know, the Avengers, whatever, you see it, right? So we cheer at this place. When we read it in a poem or read it in a music line, we get it. But we don't often like to admit that it's really still prevalent in the world. We do this easily with small versions of damaged creation. When someone's sick, they take an antibiotic to get to that sickness, right? When there's weeds in a lawn, you take, you pluck them out. When there's bacteria in water, you purify the water. When there's a dangerous or destructive idea uh, in, in one of your friend's minds and it's leading them in a way that you know that's going to dis- you know, destroy them, you sit down and you talk with them and you try and help them see where they're headed. And, and when they discover that, you hope and pray that they kind of walk a different direction, right? Don't we, don't we do that? We get it when we see it in the movies. We get it when we see it in small ways. But like Auntie Wright is saying, sometimes we don't want to see that it's actually prevalent in our world. See, God sees, and this is on the screen, you can follow this. God sees what is destroying humanity and ultimately is in, is in opposition to his good kingdom. And then he moves against it. And then he moves against it. Now, look, between you and me, I'm not a personal fan of judgment. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't feel like it's part of my character to, to come and bring judgment. Part of that is maybe my character, and part of that is because, man, God's grace and the beauty of Jesus and the invitation to God's kingdom is so wonderful that, like, it's not my role to judge. And now, I'm not a personal fan of judgment, but, I said that personally, but it does seem to be part of, part of God's work or playbook to deal with sin and death to wake us up from it. Daryl Johnson asks, is judgment good news? Is judgment good news? And then he continues and he says, judgment says God cares. Judgment says that we and our choices matter to God. Judgment says that God takes evil and sin seriously. Judgment says that God is not indifferent to nor intolerant of evil and sin. And judgment says that God moves against evil and sin. So what we see in this, in this, seven, this set of seven trumpets is God's judgment worked out in the stage of history. And sometimes it's human agency that's participating and imploding in itself. Sometimes it's divine agency. Sometimes we see a mix of both at work. But it's God decisively acting against evil. Now, we read the first four trumpets. I'm not going to read trumpet five and six because it gets ugly and it gets worse because the warning gets louder the warning gets louder after the fourth trumpet we hear this eagle this loud eagle voice just yelling out whoa 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 and then alludes to the next three trumpets because the warning gets louder and that's what happens if your friend is is hurting if your friend is walking down some destructive path and you've kind of like screamed to what you think is the top of your lungs when you know that it's getting worse you somehow find the voice to scream louder right 
And so that's kind of what's played out here in, in the next set or five and six of the trumpets. Trumpet number five describes this army of locusts and almost, you know, describes one like Satan and describes like the star that has fallen down to earth. And there's imagery there in, in the rest of Scripture about one like a star that falls down, one that we would call the Satan. And this figure is given a key to, the, to this bottomless pit and these locust warriors are unleashed. And I'm not even going to read it because when you read it, it's like... This, is, this just jars you. And the purpose of these locusts is to harm people. The sixth trumpet is an army that's so immense, it likely seeds in the readers, you know, just this, their worst nightmare. But again, keep the purpose in mind. It's to warn. It's to jar us. It's to wake us up. One of my favorite authors on Revelation, his name is Richard Bauckham, and he says this. Re read this with me. I think it's so helpful. He says, John has taken some of his contemporaries. That word contemporary means people in his own generation. John has taken some of his contemporaries' worst experiences and worst fears of war and natural disasters, blown them up to apocalyptic proportions, and cast them in biblically elusive terms, like the plagues, right? Now he says this. The point is not to predict the sequence of events, like we've been saying, the point is to evoke and to explore the meaning of the divine judgment which is impending on a sinful world. The point is not a series of events. The point is not literal, literal locusts that are like little warriors. The point is to evoke this idea of God's trying to get our attention. There's divine judgment and why? Because God's kingdom is coming, and for the sake of justice and goodness and new creation, he cannot allow worldly, the worldly kingdom to keep cycling back into sin and brokenness and rebellion. As his, as his kingdom, which is good and gracious and generous and kind and glorious and wonderful and shalom, peace, he, he can't allow the broken system of sin to keep cycling back to even have an ounce of rulership because otherwise new creation does not take root. And so it's kind of like this. There was a friend of mine, who she lives in, uh, in uh, I think it's Minnesota, and she loves like rentals and stuff, and she was reno renovating her house with her husband, and she you know, tracked it on Instagram, and so they're renovating their house, and it's going to be fun, it's going to be great, and then they hit mold. They're like, oh my gosh, there's mold behind the wall. And it's like everything stopped. Like, it must have been a really bad case of mold. They had, like, the hazmat suit on and everything. They, you know, plastic, you know, covered everything, stopped anybody from going even close to that. They ripped everything out of the bathroom, everything, everything out of the bathroom, stripped it down to the studs, made sure it was clean, and then they continued with their renovation. Why did they do that? Because they said, we're going to put in this brand-new bathroom. We cannot allow mold to continue growing under the surface. It just can't stay there. And that's kind of the image we're getting as we read through Revelation. God's new creation is coming. God's new creation is promised. But God's new creation cannot exist with the full reign of God if there's a reign of sin or evil under the surface. It just can't happen. And so the, the purpose of this moment of judgment we read in these few chapters and in parts of Revelation the purpose of it is not necessarily destruction. The purpose of it is repentance. 
The purpose is that God would get the world's attention and that God would even get our attention and those first Christ followers' attention and be woken up to say, this is what's happening when we pull the curtain, when we unveil what's taking place in our world. But the purpose is for repentance, to turn around, to follow Christ, where, where God's saying, please don't go in that direction. You're going to implode. There's a new future available for you. It's my future. It's my kingdom. Follow the way of the Lamb. Follow His power, not the world's power. Follow His power into life and hope and healing, not the world's power that will eventually implode on itself. And this isn't a new message. I mean, the New Testament says that God desires everyone to be rescued and everyone to be restored and everyone to know Him. And you know what's where there's, a, there's some comfort in the things we read? Maybe you didn't catch it, but did you notice that when, it, when we had the language of destruction, it was always one-third, 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 one-third? That's, that's the, the, the numbers in Revelation are often important. This is an indication of, of limits, of restraint, in other words, it's like God's divine judgment. He, he's like there, he's ready to judge, and he's, he's pulling back. It's limited. There's a restraint because God is patient. It's not a full throttle like, I'm going to just stop this. It's like, I want to make room for everyone to know me. That one-third is limited. The five months later on, you, you might read in the next few, few lines that we didn't get to, it's limited. It's not forever because God waits patiently for his judgment of an evil world. Even when our sin and brokenness deserves a response, God waits patiently. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners, God sent his only son, right? Even when the world's injustice deserves a penalty, and I bet you, you could easily list at least one thing in the world where you say, this demands justice. Why isn't it taken care of now, right? Even when the world's injustice deserves penalty, God waits as patiently as he can, but he warns and he prunes, and in that there's an invitation to repentance because he longs to see people, he longs for people to see the beauty of his kingdom and come in. That's what he longs for. And so this is, this is part of his merciful call, even in his judgment, so people would turn around and see him and discover him and follow him and discover life that he offers. You know, and it's one day, and we're going to get to that eventually in Revelation, one day there is some kind of a final judgment. There is some kind of a transition, some kind of a shift from the kind of life we have experiencing right now to what is described as new creation. In fact, the seventh trumpet literally says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. This hasn't happened yet, God has been patient for this to happen, and we'll pick, up this, we'll pick this up later, but that's, that's where every sets of sevens end. They all end at the same place because they're all pointing to new creation. But for now, here's my question, and I know like, I've kind of maybe thrown you guys for a loop and left you guys hanging with, well, what do, what do I do with that? <laughs> what do we do with this? Well, for now, how do we respond? First, I just want to keep coming back to this idea 
I don't believe we're called to read Revelation in a sequential, literal, predictive fashion. It doesn't mean that there's nothing in here that doesn't point to a future time, but it means that this book was primarily a prophetic pastoral message to you and me and to those first churches. And I think if we don't read Revelation with the right lens, we're going to be thrown off course. If I get caught up in trying to iron out, like, what are these locusts? Who do they become? What kind of people in the world might this be? Which era am I living? Like, I'm going to get caught up in that. I can have a whole doctoral thesis based on who these locust warriors are and where they might be situated and where they might be going. And it's like, well, how am I going to follow Jesus tomorrow with that? And I'm not saying that there's not some possibilities that when we read Revelation in every generation, we're like, oh yeah, there's tension there, there's chaos there. This looks like the tensions described in Revelation. That's for every generation. That's with every empire in the world, not just the Roman Empire, even the empires of our world today. But if I get so caught up with that, I gotta, I, that's going to throw me off course. And I know it will because I've lived in eras where it threw the church off course. I've lived in eras where people went to the movies to find out what's going to happen next, where people were, you know, just trying to figure out who's this and who's that and what's happening next. And then it was like, oh, 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 your prediction failed. Okay. Because if it's meant to be prophetic and pastoral, it's calling us to something. And I think the two or three things it calls us to, and I'll wrap up with this really briefly, is first, repentance. We already said this, but... Here's the call for us, to, call, to live daily following Jesus. That's, that's what repentance is. When Jesus came announcing his kingdom in Mark chapter 1, 15, he said, repent and believe the good news. God's kingdom is near. That wasn't actually a bad statement. That was a good statement because people were living under the tyranny of Rome and the empire and under years and years of waiting and waiting. And Jesus comes and announces this and is like, hey, God, God's kingdom is breaking through. Do you want to be part of it? And that's part of what repentance is, this, this call to follow Jesus daily. And, I don't, and I, what I'm careful of is not to turn these sets of sevens into a sequence you're going to look for on CNN or CBC or some overly speculative YouTube channel that's 100% certain that the 200 million army in chapter 9 is, is China and that the helicopters are Russia and that there is something under the ground in the United States that is something else in there. Like, I, that's, that's my concern because I long for us to follow Jesus. And if we see this as a divine wake-up call to the world and even to us, then we will move into the kind of life following Jesus daily. See, there's, not, there's nothing new in Revelation that's not already been in the Bible. It's a call to follow Jesus. It's repentance. It's life. It's hope. It's God's kingdom. But it's also a call and using language that wakes us up to when we're, when we're dull, when we're blind, when we're missing the fact that there is sin around us, but there's also life available to us. So if you're here today, like you just came for the first time to our church, I'm like, you know, this was a pretty uh, intense invitation or call or understanding. But, the, but you know what? If you're searching, the beautiful thing is, if you're searching, the call to repentance is a call to life. It's a call to hope. It's a call to the joy of God's kingdom. But it's also in that repentance, it's also recognizing 
the trajectory I've been going in, the systems I have been complicit with, the, the influences that have led, led my life so far, they, have, they, have, they are not where God wants to take me. They are not the life that God longs for me. So I turn from them. That's repentance. I turn from them and I move in his direction. Another part of this is when we read this, I hope it calls us to pray. Not pray out of fear, but pray because when we see the opening of that scene and the flashes of lightning and thunder and the thunderclaps and all that kind of stuff that comes as, as we, read, we read that the, the prayers of the saints in, in God's heavenly, heavenly realm there, and then you know the, the, the prayers are laid out, there's a censer, kind of like a bowl, and then fires poured into that, and they're all mixed in together, and they're thrown over kind of into the earth. That's the image you get, like from one realm to another. And then there's thunderclaps and lightning flashes and everything. This is really amazing because this is a metaphor telling us that your prayer matters and my prayer matters, that when we pray, we partner with God's kingdom and our prayers actually have an effect in our world. And so when Jesus invited us to say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it means that your prayer matters and my prayer matters because when we pray, that's where heaven and earth meet. And even in this image in chapter 8, when we see the prayers of the saints and what's going on in heaven, and then this overflow into the world, that's where heaven and earth meets, and our prayers actually make a difference. Our prayers mean something. So here's the cool thing is, don't wait in a literal sense for flashes of lightning or thunders in the sky. But wouldn't it be amazing that as you pray and God uses you to step out into serving Him in the world, that as you pray and now are in daily partnership with God's purposes in the world, that your very action and your very service and your very love and your very word might reflect a thunderclap or reflect a lightning flash or reflect the impact of God's kingdom in the world around us? Man, that's a beautiful, that's an amazing invitation for us. And then we're called to also proclaim this. We're actually invited to call each other but also the world to repentance. Now, be cautious, because some people, what they do is they take this language and they absorb it, and then that becomes their judgment call to the world. You know, 30 of your neighborhood's gonna be gone. Like, imagine that would be you on, the, on your street corner. They, they, they do that, and that, that's not the right approach. In fact, most often in the scripture, we see that repentance even comes through kindness. Paul Kindness leads people to repentance, and he's telling the early church that. Some of what we do through prayer and trusting the Holy Spirit to work calls people to repentance, but in light of proclamation, God uses you too, and God uses me too. When you alert someone to God's kingdom and call them to repent and believe the good news, like Jesus does in Mark chapter 115, you are a proclaimer of the good news of God's kingdom. You're a proclaimer. You're proclaiming and calling people to repentance. So don't equate the invitation of repentance today necessarily with just the seven trumpets. Leave that kind of, leave the enormity of that burden to God. Right? Leave the enormity of that burden to God. Remember, Moses didn't send the plagues. Moses went into Egypt to call Pharaoh to change his mind so Israel would be freed. He let God deal with the enormity of the issue. None of us has fire in our hands to send. It's not us. God, in his divine wisdom, knows how to judge and knows the throttle of patience. We aren't the ones who judge the world. God is. 
But we can invite the world to repentance. We can invite the world to repentance. And like a good friend, you know, I just go back to the Avengers image, you know, Black Widow and, and Hawkeye. Like, like a good friend, sometimes you do jolt your friend. You're like, don't you know what you're doing? Don't you know where you're going? Don't you know where this is going to lead you? And why do we do that with some of our friends and our family members when we have the place and the comfort and the safety to do that? Because life in God's kingdom is way better because the future is full of hope and we know whose kingdom will last, God's kingdom, amen? And so we're, we're invited to participate in that, in our own repentance as we follow Christ, in our prayers, trusting that that's where heaven and earth meet, and in how God uses us to proclaim repentance through a life of kindness, through a life of prayer, and when God gives opportunity, through a life of proclamation. Amen? I'm going to invite us to pray as we, we wrap up. And by the way, I just want to, even just before I pray, I mean, if there's um, any questions about this kind of, this letter and this book and this series, we obviously cannot get through everything, um, every reference. So if there's questions, please, like, send me a note, post it. Um, we'll, we'd love to just kind of dialogue and maybe create further opportunity for that. But let, let's pause and pray today. Our Heavenly Father, may we be woken up initially. Lord, wake us up. Wake us up. This, Lord, these images were first read by these seven churches in Asia Minor. How might they have responded in that time? How might this have also brought them a sense of um, comfort to be able to trust you because they know that you're at work and where there is injustices, you will bring justice. God, help us to appropriate this message for us today. Help us to be woken up to the reality of life in your kingdom. That is what you long for us. And thank you that at times you have not stopped short of even shocking us because we at times can become blind or dull or deaf or immune to seeing even the very brokenness that hurts us and destroys us. God, wake us up where necessary. Help us to cherish and welcome the beautiful invitation of repentance because we know that, that the new direction of repentance and following you is a life of, towards new creation. Oh God, as each of us this week pray and seek your face and pray that line that you've taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we pray that for the borough of Il Bazaar this week, for that home that the people connected to this horrible tragedy last week in these murders. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done right there. May your kingdom come and your will be done on our street, in our families, in our relationships, in our singleness, in our marriage. Oh, God in our finances, in our sexuality, in our pursuits. God, for every of the 19 boroughs of Montreal 
and the suburbs and the north and south shore, God. May your kingdom come and your will be done. And Lord, may we not forget the rest of Scripture that calls us to be your people of peace in a world of chaos, to be your people that that proclaims your shalom, where you call us to work for the good of the city, that that might be even in the middle of the messiness, even in the middle of the brokenness, God, may, may may there be lampstands of your light and goodness and peace and hope. May you even use that, God, to alert people to your kingdom. And when we pray, God, may we trust that you're at work, that we're joining with you in your work. And then use us, God, to call one another and those around us. When you truly lead by your spirit, you'll give us the right words. Help us to be people of the Lamb who is the lens in which we read this letter. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.